All right, dear friends, welcome back. This will be podcast number five. Again, my name is Drew Hassan. Uh, I've started the Recovery Lab podcast series in the hopes that we can do what is necessary to promote recovery. We have uh, an excellent guest on today, Mr. Carver Brown, who's going to share uh, a lot of his, his wealth of knowledge with us. So as I start off every one of these in the same capacity, please y'all comment, give me some constructive criticism. Uh, thank you to the people who have offered up suggested topics or nominated somebody else to be on the podcast. Uh, I would also like to spend a, send a special shout out of thanks to Danny. I appreciate you. Danny has been uh, supporting the podcast and we certainly appreciate his endeavors. Um, so if you want to help us out, there's still a couple pieces of equipment I need. I need something called a mixer to plug the fancier microphones into so that it will sound better. Uh, if you want to send me a couple dollars, again, my cash tag is cash tag Daniel Hassan. If I can get enough support, then I can really move this along into maybe uh, creating a nonprofit and uh, certainly, again, offer up my transparency with anybody's money they send me because nothing is shadier than the drug addict that's got a pocket full of money and he's not accountable. All right, so uh, that's, a, that's enough of my begathon. Uh, I am shorter than both NPR and K-Love with begging. All right, so without further ado, I believe that's all of the introductory information I have. Uh, welcome, Carver Brown. Good to see you, buddy. Hey, good to see you. I'm glad to be here. All right, so we were just talking, Carver and I were, about what we were going to talk about, and I told him I had some questions, and I was hoping he wasn't going to ask me what those questions were so that we could get, like, a fresh take. Right. Carver has no idea some of the things I've written down. None. I'm trying to increase the pressure on him over there. Oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> zero pressure. I'm an open book. Open book. Amen. Nothing like transparency. That's right. All right, so start us off, Carver. How, how'd you get sober? What did it take? Did you relapse a couple times? No, I've had, uh, well, I mean, I've been relapsable. Yeah. You know, I mean, but I hadn't I hadn't had the need to go back. So I'm, I think they call us a one and done, maybe. Um, a catastrophe is what got me in here. I had struggled uh, with my addictions uh, over, the, over the, my life. I was 47 years old. Uh, I had a terrible weekend, like an entire blackout weekend. And I, boy, I tell you, you want to have a, an experience, come to defending yourself to a circle of your friends and not know what we're talking about. You know, I came out of a blackout nice. in the middle of a very angry conversation, and I'm trying to figure out what in the heck, you know, has happened. So it was terrifying to me. And I knew... That, you know, I, there had been all sorts of evidence that had been piling up over the years, but that was the one that sort of dropped the hammer on me, and I knew I needed to do something. And so the next uh, morning, I went into work. I went to the president of the company I was working for, told him I was going to be taking some time off, that I needed to do some, you know, some personal introspection. Some soul searching. <laughs> some soul searching. And I put myself into a little crappy jitter joint, not to get sober, but to do damage control. I right. was going to try to shift the dialogue, you know, for people. Instead of being attacking me, I was going to try to tilt the scales to where people might, you know, pity me or it was it was all about me be trying to be in control. I was going to massage and manage, you know, this thing. <laughs> well, you know, funny thing happens you know, when you put yourself into this thing, because there's no open bar, there was no medication management, and and I was, it was as much alcohol, I mean, in pure tonnage, I probably took more pills, maybe, than consumed liquids, but then there was herbs and powders and everything you can name, and I was a hot mess. My sponsor said, that when he first encountered me, there was steam coming off of me. So I was, I was, I was in bad shape. I go into this place to try to do damage control, and it was about the third day when the shaking really took over that I had this awakening to the fact that, uh-oh, I might have ruined 
my life. And at 47 years old, I thought, you know, there is no guarantee that my career is going to be waiting for me, no guarantee that my wife is waiting for me, no guarantee that my friends are waiting for me, and that this may be an end game. And I thought, if I could just find a cabin in the woods and a nearby Walmart for cat food and, you know, that I will, I will leave the world alone and the world can just leave me alone. That was my vision for recovery. And, uh, and I, I'll never forget crawling. I, there was this little crappy hospital bed I was in with wheels on it and everything. And with one of those little, you know, four inch thick plastic wrapped mattresses, I crawled to the edge of my bed. I, I had lost the feeling in my feet. Uh, I was sweating and freezing and trembling. I folded my hands together. I put my elbows on that mattress, leaned forward, and I can still recall the crackle of that plastic as I put my weight into it. And I begged God if God was there to just to do whatever he wanted with me because I was done. I, whatever it takes, I, I remember saying, I just, I, I can't do this anymore. And I didn't know it, you know, at the time, but in some sense, you know, I had taken the first three steps. Yeah. You know, kind of right there, without really knowing what I was doing. But there was, there was certainly a surrender on the floor. And when I got up from the floor, in my mind, absolutely nothing had changed. I still didn't have any feeling in my feet. Where's that burning bush? Yeah. Where is that burning bush? You know, like I didn't have. I later read about Bill Wilson in the hospital and this white light experience. I, I had zero experience, <laughs> and uh, and I I just I. But it, looking back at it, doesn't now, that really speak to the ego of the drug addict? Oh like, God. I, you heard me. Right. I have given my life to you. <laughs> right, right. If anybody is worthy right. of your presence, you should, yeah. It's, it's, at, at the same time, there's so much shame. So it's a, it's a balance. Like the ego plus the shame. Right. You know, is just, I mean, now that's a, that's a powerful package to unpack, you know. Uh, and, uh, but, but I remember... I, you know, this my, my my looking back on it now as I view as I view what happened to me in that moment that I believe that my world that was spinning toward my destruction paused in that moment and imperceptible to me slowly started to rotate the opposite direction. I was completely unaware and 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 also completely unaware of how much work there was going to be ahead of me and what I needed to do. You know, thankfully, recovery sort of unfolds little bits at a time because, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was going to do then after that. And my experience in this little place was no more than about, I think I was there maybe, you know, eight or nine days or something. Oh, wow. It wasn't even a no, full no. term, oh, oh, no. what we consider oh, you know, no. primary. Oh, no, 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 no. I finished detoxing NAA. I mean, I clearly remember at the end of those meetings that kind of creeped me out in the beginning. I wasn't sure what was going on. Holding hands with people, which also creeped me out. And, and being aware of the fact that I was trembling the hands of the people I was grasping and just trying to hold, hold it together. And um, so, so, yeah, I, it, it was a struggle for me. I was, uh, I was in bad shape. I was in bad shape. And honestly, Cognitively, I was compl I was damaged too because I could not, for the life of me, understand a lot of what people were talking about in the meetings. You know, yeah, was, all those pistons weren't firing. They were not firing. I remember distinctly. I'm glad you said that. I I remember distinctly being in a meeting, and someone at the end of the meeting made reference to a comment that a member had said at the beginning of the meeting. And I thought, he's a genius. <laughs> he remembered and held That short-term memory taking a beating. Oh, <laughs> exactly. He, he 
held on to that notion without articulating it or writing it down for almost an hour. Look, I was at the last treatment center that I went to for a few months before I, I, felt I could even read a book. Yeah. Or even some of a book. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just as spun out and strung out and yeah. phased, I guess, by my, you know, the dilemma that my life had become. It's amazing we can recover from that. It is. The, I mean, the, the, the capacity for the healing of the human body, both physical, mental, spiritual, is astonishing. That really we can is. come back from that. Are you kidding me? At 47 years old, to be able to bounce back from that and to be able to, you know, in some ways carry on a conversation. And I was, I only shaved you off by a couple years. So I guess when I went, I was, I was in my 40s. Yeah. But my mind was just bent. Right. I mean, by, you know, the drugs had really just skewed. Then then really? talk about the levels of immaturity that we're oh. experiencing. I was like a, you know, a crazed teenager inside in my mentally, you know, and Where was this place that you went? I went to Brentwood out on Lakeland Drive. Okay. I just put I was going to go to someplace close. I was going to go in. I didn't know how long just I'd Just get you there. out of acute physical. Yeah, I was well, I was just like, once again damage control. I just wanted to get my papers. And, and, you know, and I did carry my discharge papers for the longest time in the event that someone would say, dude, you're crazy. I could pull them out and say, nope, they, they, me. they let me go. Well, yeah. then, so you get out and then just commence what has to be an impressive amount of resolve and personal stick-to-itiveness. Fear. Fear. That's what it was. I was like, just... Isn't it great when we can harness the positivity in fear. Yeah. I was scared. I was really, I was scared and trapped. And, you know, I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do. I left, I was discharged on a Monday. I do recall that. And I, I remember asking the lady in the window, you know, what do I do? What do I do now? And she says, well, for you, you know, <laughs> you know, like I'm seeing some special case. Yeah, yeah for you. No, not that guy. But for you, we recommend Alcoholics Anonymous. And a lot of it. And I said, well, where's that? And she handed me the old-timers. You know, we just had the old-timers convention wrapped up today. And the, but the old-timers used to put out this little bitty pamphlet, um, and it had all the meetings printed in it because there wasn't any Internet. Right. Nothing like that. And Anyway, this little pamphlet. And she had handed me this, and I had looked through it, and there were about maybe three meetings per page. You turn the page and a little bitty thing. And I'm like, I look at this, but here's some meetings. And I turn the page, there's some more meetings. And I turn the page, more meetings. And I'm still on Monday. Right. I'm thinking these are some meeting fools, these anonymous alcoholic people. And I'll never forget there was a man standing next to me who had been to so many treatments. He never really took the bathrobe off. You know, he had been to lots of treatments. He was very treatment savvy. The place, the, the place kind of treated him sort of like Otis. Yeah, at, at Mayberry. Little, he kind of he would he could walk around the nurses' station and oh, I'll get that for you. And I, I thought, what a curious. You're familiar with this place. Yeah, he oh he knew his way around and apparently had insurance. Like I think he was an insurance agent, by the way, and it just you know had just spectacular insurance and had utilized it extensively apparently never saw him again in my life he took that little pamphlet out of my hands and he says oh I'll, I'll show you the meetings you're, you're gonna like and instantly I thought oh there's gonna be meetings to like and not like right you know so, you know he he got a highlighter went around the desk <laughs> that I didn't know we were in, yeah. entitled to do. And he got this highlighter and he started highlighting, you'll like this bunch. I remember the Beagle Pack was one that he highlighted. Madison Ridgeland was one he highlighted. Um, some of the Yana's club meetings he had highlighted. And um, But I, I, was, I, I left there and, and that night I went to my very first AA. Well, how long ago was that? That was June. Well, I in I I was I was I um, went into treatment June the fourteenth, two thousand and four, and I started 
I had asked the lady, how many of these do I need? And she had told me 90 meetings in 90 days. I thought I'd gone deaf. I, I, I beg your pardon, you, mm. did you, what, what? You misspoke. Obviously. Yeah, obviously, I mean, 90 meetings in a couple of years, maybe, but uh, she was very clear. <laughs> and uh, so I started an endeavor to go to at least a meeting every day. And, and what happened was I ended up doing, I did a 90 and 90, I did it for a year. So at the end of my first year, my sponsor said, uh, you know, he whispered to me as he was giving me my first year chip, he says, do you, do you realize you've been to about 400 meetings? And I hadn't even thought of it that way. I had just been doing what was, because there's magic that happens. That, but when you get to that, start approaching that 90 days, you know, now you are familiar, you understand the routine, you know some people by name, people know you by name, and, and, and the comfort level had gone up so much that I wasn't about to stop. Because honestly, the people at work didn't trust me. My wife had either left or was about to leave at that point. Um, I, I was alone. My friends, you know, none of my drinking buddies were around. Uh, and so, and I was trying to keep my distance as well, and it was it was sad. It, I was sad. I was angry. I couldn't believe how bad I had let me down. How could I possibly? I am a smart guy. How could I possibly let this thing slip so far to where I have done this? To this me? much damage. This much damage to me. And even at that, even with all that level of understanding, I still did not adequately assess, even at that point, how much damage had been done. Uh, but boy, I had enough awareness to know that it was bad. <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And then it was a matter of introducing me, and thank God for sponsorship. I mean, if it hadn't have been that, there was a great fear in me that I could have orbited the planet recovery and never landed the capsule. You know, I, I needed to plant my flag and become a member. And I really, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to talk. I just, I kind of wanted to be anonymous. I purposefully arrived right when the meeting started. And I mean, by the time the final consonant of the Amen was enunciated. I was in my car Out the door. and gone. You know, there was dust. Look, that can be a blessing and a curse. You know, it, it it compounds that alienation that we can sometimes feel. Right. But it also keeps you from getting into the shenanigans that can be the AA fellowship from time to time. <laughs> and it is shenanigans. Yeah. It is trying to figure out, like, what? You know, some people. and you know, That many people with personality deficiencies... Oh. Somebody said early on, we're going to treat you so many different ways, you're bound to like one of them. Right. <laughs> and that That's is, a good point. Isn't that great? And, and what, a, what a wonderful cast of characters it, it is and it was and is and still is. And, I, you know, and the stories, that, that was the thing. The stories that we hear, the stories that we get from, from it are just the most, I mean, we laugh, we cry. We hear the things that are heartbroken, and sometimes, you know, kind of wonder, you know, oh man, everything this person has gone through, and they're still coming, you know, like wow, it's it's astonishing, you know, sometimes. Uh, I love it, I absolutely. Well, love you it. know, I think AA in its roots, you know, has in that finding that common thread, and then realizing I'm not alone. Right. Well, that's what sponsorship did for me. So I was, I was about, I guess I was about two weeks in. The Beagle Pack used to meet over on Old Canton Road uh, at a church that's next to the synagogue when it was over there. And I, I loved the Saturday meetings because nobody would ever accidentally call on you, you know. So big Saturday morning meeting and I'm sitting there and you know, people are, are sharing, and all of a sudden, across the room, this man describes in detail exactly what I was going through as a newcomer. 
And I was, I mean, honestly, now I realize it was a spiritual experience. Hearing my story so clearly come out of the mouth of somebody else, that's a spiritual experience. And I, I had this thought come over me that was I needed to go to him and thank him for what he said. The, the huge difference between me and that guy, he was happy. And I was not. Right. I could I could see the joy. I could hear it in his voice, and 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 at the end of the meeting, which was not my habit, I stuck around. I think it might have been the first time that I ever stuck around at the end of the meeting, and uh, he was talking to everybody and hugging people and laughing, and I'm kind of hovering, you know, waiting for a break in the action, thinking he must be running for governor. <laughs> or something. I don't know what he's doing. You know, this is a little over the top. And as soon as it there was a an action pause, I stepped in and told him, you know, I want to thank you for what you said in the meeting. That was extremely helpful for me. And he said, Hey, I hadn't seen you around here before. Are you new? And I said, No. I am not new. I've been coming for two weeks. Two whole weeks. Uh, and that has been a long, that was a long two right. weeks. That's an impressive commitment. Yeah. That, well, well, now, and he said, he looked at me, he got very serious. He looked at me straight in the eye and he said, two weeks. He said, that's a long time. And, you know, I thought, damn right thank you yeah. for acknowledging my hard work and not being dismissive you know or talking down to me yeah and uh, he then asked me I will never forget this moment in time and I've told this this so many times but it's just so important to me and I I feel I just I can feel it here in my heart he said to me how are you sleeping isn't that great what a what a wonderful what an inspired question. Yes, a, what a diagnostic of early recovery, because then he he footballs that back to me, and then I was I launched into oh my gosh well I fall asleep I wake up at two o'clock in the morning my mind is you know trying to solve problems that don't exist I can't go back to sleep I'm just I'm being tortured by all these rolling thoughts. It's like a chessboard on crack, you know, and, and he, uh, and, and from then on, the, we, he, we started talking about sleep. We didn't talk about not drinking. We didn't talk, we just talked about ways to manage sleep hygiene, which you and I were talking about yeah. <laughs> as we got started. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, the, some, we talked so much that somebody turned the light off in the room, he said, come on outside. And I followed him outside. He's chattering away. I'm, I'm like hearing about every third word. And we go outside and he, we talk some more. He just does most of the talking. He looked at his watch and he goes, oh my gosh, I've got to go. And these words, without my brain being connected, words flew out of my mouth. And I didn't even know they were the magic words. But what flew out of my mouth was, what do you think I ought to do now? Because I didn't have a clue. That's as good as it gets. This is, this, is, this is Saturday at about 10.30 or maybe 11 in the morning. And I don't know what I'm supposed to, I don't know, how, you know, I, I don't know what to do the rest of the day. I do not know. He said, uh, why don't you call me and we'll talk about it. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a scrap of paper, scribbled his phone number and his first name on the paper, I wish I had it today, handed it to me and said, call me tonight about seven and we'll talk about it. You know, like we were talking about a little while ago, how you never know what's gonna be the tipping point for somebody. Right. Like Angela going to that thing downtown oh at seven months sober. Unbelievable. And, uh, what a, a lesson for us that have been sober for a minute or two. You never know what small interaction is gonna be the world for some new person right. or some other person. Right, right. And the fact that, you know, he had spent this time with me, but it go it gets better because you know, he asked me what, that night. I, I phoned him. I phoned him. I mean, I was, you know, I needed. Some, I didn't know what I needed. 
I called the guy, I phoned him up, exact, you know how it is, exactly at the crack of seven, I called him and, and said, <laughs> said to him, I recall to this moment, do you, um, hey, I'm the guy you met this morning right. at the meeting, you know, do you remember me? He said, yes, <laughs> I remember you, you're two weeks. You're the guy with two you're weeks. The guy with two weeks. And I said, yeah, you know, and we talked a little bit and he says, are you going to a meeting tomorrow? And I said, yes. And he said, which meeting are you going to? And I think it must have been the the Sunday, two o'clock uh, Madison Ridgeland meeting, quite possibly. And I said, yes, I'm going to a meeting. I told him which one. He said, how about if I meet you there? And he was there. He was there at the next meeting I went to. And... Uh, and after that, we visited after the meeting, and he suggested, you know, why don't we, you know, check in with each other regularly? You know, he said, was it helpful? Another great diet. Was it helpful us talking the other night? And I said, yeah, you better believe it, because you're about the only person talking to me. Right. And he says, well, why don't we check in each, you know, mid-morning? I'll call you, you call me. Let's just reach... And he said this great line, I have used it so many times, he said, it would be helpful for me. See what he's doing? Yeah. And, and, and it was just, well, you know, okay, well, it's helpful for him. And it never occurred, you know, to me. And, and that's what set the stage moving forward was a regular dialogue with him moving forward that broke me out. Because I, if I could if I could connect with one guy, I could connect with another, and another, and he introduced me to other folks that were, you know, working really great programs. Brought you into the fold. Brought me into the fold. Introduced me around. I was still very hesitant, very shy, and didn't really want to engage with a lot of people. And but he did. He was undaunted. He continued to, you know, and I was crazy. I mean, I. I mean, my brain was just, must have been jello. I remember sitting in a meeting looking down. I had two different shoes on. Damn. To my credit, they were both loafers, but they were different loafers. Not I was just two different socks, two different no, shoes. No, two different shoes. <laughs> Does that not tell you something? I get it, man. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. We, we are God's chosen, well, they God made addicts to, yeah, just because we're God's chosen kids. We get a second life. Get a second life. And few people ever get that. They muddle through their one, trying to make heads or tails of it, doing the best they can, and many do spectacular things, and some kind of crawl along, but we get a chance to do it all over again. Speaking of getting a chance to do it all over again, I would love to sit here and listen to you keep just talking, kind of like a, a story meeting with the question <laughs> yeah, right. here or there. But because of your uh, the work you do to promote interventions and then the, yeah. the step videos, which we'll get to a little more at length, I kind of want to fast forward you a little sure, bit. Sure, sure, sure. How long did it take you to get in a professional capacity? Long, long time. I mean, first... You know, I had I was I had a career. I was I was uh, I was in international sales and marketing uh, with a, a local company, a family-owned business, and and I I, w I was in that trying to make heads or tails of if I was still a fit for that or what I was going to do, and I struggled mightily. That first year was all about going to meetings, making connections, just doing recovery, figuring out what it was. And, and then my career vanished at about a year. It, it just was not a, I wasn't a fit for them. They were no longer a fit for me anymore. I had been doing that same thing for 27 years and it was time to part ways. And we did. And then I didn't know what I was gonna do because I had been doing the same thing for so long. I ended up volunteering at a men's transitional housing facility in the inner city. And, um, and that was a game changer for me because at a year sober, I came up with this thing. I was what I, I, was what I described to be stark raving sober. Mm. I was sober, my wife had long left, 
I've been going to tons of meetings. I knew all kinds of people. I have no career. I'm not even working. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like this open book, and, um, and I was lost, but I was hopeful. And I had time on my hands, and I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how. And I, 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 rem- I prayed about it. I, I actually, I prayed, I got back on my knees and I said, I need you all over again in a, just in the same profound way I did the day I prayed at day three. And I came up with this notion. When I was at Brentwood, there was an AA volunteer who came and conducted a little quasi-meeting for us. And I thought, I could do that. You know, I called up Brentwood. I said, hey, I went through your program and I've been sober now a year. I would love to come down there. You know, y'all had these meetings and I don't know if that guy's still doing it, but I would love to come down there and I would do it. And they said, no. <laughs> we remember you. Yeah, thank you, but no, thank you. I don't know what, <laughs> you know. And so I went, okay. I, you know, I said, okay, no spiritual energy there. So I waited, and a friend of mine from AA, about a week later, called me up and asked me if I wanted to come to this men's transitional housing place and tell my story. And I went, absolutely. And I went down there, told my story, fell in love. Uh, Turns out I knew a guy who was running the place. Um, and and, And so I, for two and a half years, I volunteered down there. I volunteered there. I became a yoga instructor. I know from 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 not being able to walk in the room, having to put my hands on the backs of chairs to steady myself. I got into yoga in a big way, and I took a teacher training course to help me in my. And then when I didn't have a career, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was like, "Well, I've been doing all this yoga," so I I started working for the YMCA. I worked for the Healthline at St. Dominic's. I became Blue Cross Blue Shields yoga instructor. I'm one of the few people that get money out of Blue Cross. Just saying, little special tidbit. And and that was the foundation of what happened. And then I I I, che- I ended up going to work part time for Bridge to Recovery for Costas and. That and she let me do some yoga classes. She let me uh, go through the. Um, um, I, I just answered phones and greeted the clients coming in. I could sit in on a group now and again. You're going to have Denise Marsters right. on. I think the first time I ever met you was when I was at Bridge. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. You're doing well. <laughs> It, it, I, I, I was there, I was kind of working. I didn't know what I was doing, but, but it, it let me see behind the curtain of how a treatment center operates, at least an outpatient treatment center, right. and I learned a lot. And then, all, about a year, I did that for a year, and then I got a, a phone call from Pine Grove down in Hattiesburg, and they asked me if I wanted to come and interview to run their alumni program. And I said, is it full time? I said, I'll take it. Is it full time? They said, yes. I said, I'll take it, but what is it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it is. And they said, well, you come down, we'll explain it to you. We'll show you. And uh, and then I worked. Did you live in Hattiesburg? No, I, I lived in Jackson, but I commuted. Uh, I, I didn't have every to, day. No, no, no. I didn't have to be down there every day. Okay. I just needed to be down there to interact with clients, and they actually gave me an office in Madison. So I had an office in Madison where there was an outreach, little outreach place going on, and I would go back and forth. And that's so. So for the next eleven years, I ran their alumni program. I started interacting with families. I started interacting with clients. I started opening up. Because there was a sex addiction track, there was a ladies program, there was, you know, um, there was the men's program. It, you know, it was fascinating. There was the PA, there was uh, the PEP program, uh, which was behavioral. It, I mean, and I got to be around all of these brilliant clinicians, and I started taking trainings, and I started, 
you know, getting interested in coaching and recovery coaching and recovery coach training and intervention and all these things. And Pine Grove would either give me time off to go do it and I'd pay for it or maybe they would sponsor me to do it or it just different things. But I started adding these trainings to what I was doing because I don't have a degree. I don't even have an undergrad degree, you know, I'm just saying. And, uh, but you know, you don't need one to be an alumni coordinator necessarily, right. you know, you just, you need to be sober all morning long. And, uh, and so with my partner, Lauren, who you ought to have on the podcast, we built this machine. We, and I helped to find, to, to create this organization called TPAS, Treatment Professionals and Alumni Services. There was no national organization for training for alumni coordinators, um, and I'm still involved on their uh, Tell advisory Tell me a little board. bit about what an alumni coordinator might do. Is this just intended to make it easier for the recent graduate to stay involved? Well, that's, that's part of it. I mean, you know, it's, so basically as an alumni coordinator, you're gonna take the grad, now there's a whole lot of ways to approach this thing, and every treatment center has a different culture. So alumni programs are married with the treatment center and match the culture of the treatment center. In its, in its basic form, it's what you're doing is you're, you're creating programming to help people stay sober. And, and you're creating, in a sense, from a business model point of view, referral sources for the treatment center. What a blessing for you to, because I can see how this alumni institution is geared to lessen the shock of what you had to the nth degree going from eight or nine days at Brentwood into boom, here, got a bunch of these meetings, yeah. have at it. Yeah, yeah, figure it out, good luck. Yeah, yeah. Not, not many people can overcome that shock. Well, I was afraid. I was afraid that my life was over. And, and I, literally, I had kind of painted myself into a corner. I mean, literally, I felt sort of trapped. You right. Know, does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. I mean, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I'm either going to get sober with this band of knuckleheads or what the, what the heck else am I going to do? Like, what's plan B? Right. Right? And I was convinced that if I go back to drinking and using that it it will come crashing down on me in a horrible burning collision that will just destroy me. I just I was so firmly convinced that this was a turning point and if I did not plant my flag and own this thing as best I could and I didn't do it perfect. I made all kinds of mistakes, but I never drank or used We've got to reach that point where no matter what, I'm just not gonna. My sponsor used to say, and I love this, he had such a lighthearted approach to this stuff. He said, uh, he said, you know, if you're on your way to the liquor store, he said, pull over and slug a cop. Because we can bribe a judge, but we can't deal with mental illness. Right? I'm right. You know, he says, if you're on your way, to the, to the worst neighborhood in town. He said, drive into a tree because we can get you a body shop, but we can't get you a new brain. You know, we can't, we're not gonna be able to deal with, with profound mental illness. That's gonna be a, a body shop is an easy problem. Profound mental illness is gonna be a much difficult. A little more involved. A little more involved. A little more involved. All right, so I got you distracted. You're Sorry. At, you're at Pine Grove. Oh, you're yeah. growing your professional knowledge. I meet Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's running, you know, this celebrity clinician, uh, two double PhD, who's running the sex addiction track. I meet Isaac Booz, uh, who's now um, involved with Mississippi Association of Addiction Professionals and works at uh, at Clearview uh, Treatment Center down in Hattiesburg. And I met Caroline Smith, who's a nationally recognized speaker. And these guys treated me like family. They treated me like I knew what I was doing. They respected the, 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 what I had been through. They respected, I, I'm, you know, all that time at the transitional housing, I learned to meet people where they are. And I made every effort I could 
to meet the clients where they were and create programming with them while they were in treatment to bond with them through storytelling and workshops in order that when they were graduates, I would be a connection for them to stay invested in their recovery and, and invested in Pine Grove. And, and these brilliant clinicians and all were just, I just, I, 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 was like a, I was like in treatment. I was getting the treatment that I missed when I was at day three. I was getting it at Pine Grove. I sat in on all the lectures I sat in when Pat Carnes would have him start doing work at the alumni. And I'm sitting there doing my work. Doing the same thing? Oh, I'm doing this. Are you kidding me? And then I'm bonding with these men and women because we're doing it together. And and I'm telling them, I don't care how long you're sober, you, you we all are still doing our work. And I'm uncovering, discovering, and discarding old beliefs and things about me and, and um so basically, I was in treatment for 11 years. I used to tell the clients, at least you get to go home. I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> you know? You're, go, you're, yeah. compl- you're complaining about 90 days. I'm in here a decade. <laughs> you know? So when you left Pine Grove, you don't work at Pine Grove anymore. I don't. I left Pine Grove. Pine Grove was going through a lot of changes, and there was just it was just kind of time, you know, for me. And a new treatment center was being built out in Brandon that was being and, and it had a lot of promise, and I was really looking forward to something new. And, and, then, and then I was doing interventions with the blessing of Pine Grove and doing some coaching and family work. I became a structured family recovery counselor, so I was working with families in, in that arena. And so I left Pine Grove developing my own kind of, uh, with a partner, with my partner Lauren, we were developing creative addiction services and started providing services to the public. At the same time, this treatment center was being built out in Brandon that was going to need some startup help. They needed to build systems. They needed an alumni program. They needed a family program. They needed, they needed everything. They needed uh, case management. I mean, it was like ground up. And so I ended up joining them uh, and the t- the moment that I joined, the country went into lockdown. Mm-hmm. So it was a treatment center that opened under a closed atmosphere. So I spent the next uh, few couple of years, two and a half or so years, working with them, building that program, helping them to get established. And then I've transitioned now away from that and back to working in creative addiction services and just helping families. And you know we don't advertise. It's strictly word of mouth. Uh, people find me, us, and contact us and ask for help. And some of it is pay, some of it is voluntary. Some people can't afford to pay. We help them anyway. Uh, I help people find treatment. Um, we've put a ton of people in treatment centers all over the country. Uh, I've done, we've done. We've been extremely successful in our interventions. I coach clients. Um, I've been onboarded in a couple of therapy. I work with uh, Killebrew Psychological Services in Ridgeland. I'm a grief recovery specialist. I've been doing that under their umbrella. I've also recently onboarded uh, with uh, um, um, in uh, in Madison, um, and I'm just I'm drawing a blank with uh, Ronan Eva, a hunter uh, who run a Christian. Uh, counseling service and I've been doing some coaching and uh, they specialize in sex addiction so I've been because of my work with Pat Carnes and my own personal work in that arena uh, it's been helpful to me to do some coaching with them and then some potential for grief recovery and then I'm leaving Tuesday to join a think tank in San Francisco to kind of do some vision and work on some different recovery models and what might happen with coaching and coach training and intervention services and I'm just going to kind of sort of try to revision what I'm doing and um, I don't know you know I don't know I'm kind of in a well there's no shortage of people that need help I mean it's not it's a growth industry I hate to say but yeah there is no shortage um, of people but being able to figure out ways to, to, to you know elevate my services so that people are aware of what we're doing and all I have, we haven't had the need at this point 
to do anything. And I think there's a time coming now that either I need to align myself and my partner with maybe some other organizations or maybe just elevate the knowledge of what we're doing, maybe that. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm 66 years old with a six-year-old. So we have to, I don't feel so bad. I'm 40, I'll be 47. I have a two-year-old. Oh, so. there you go. So listen, I mean, it's the greatest, this is the greatest show on earth. So I'm a first-time dad, you know, at 60, at 60. So I've got a whole new legacy. I've got a whole new thing kind of going on there. <laughs> it is a delight. And, I, and, and I'm married to the sweetest lady on the planet. And uh, so there's this whole family you know, this need for me to... Do you think that gives you deeper meaning to some oh, of the things that you... a hundred percent. I was so ill-equipped at 47 to be a dad. I'd have been a train wreck. And at 30, I'd have been an, I'd have been an insane. At 20, it would have been probably criminal. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm... You talk about, you know, uh, uh, slow to the party. And, and you know, that's me. I'm, I'm just I'm just now I'm just now able to to really pull it off I think and do it in a way it's there's advantages and disadvantages obviously but um, but it's a delight and it's so important to me now to be able to provide for him what what I I missed out on I think I'm torn here so you are absolutely fascinating oh and there is literally like two hours more worth of stuff I want to talk to you about. So I don't want these to run too long yeah, because no. I don't want to bore people to tears. Right. But look, you, in, while we're recording this, you must promise to come back yeah. and let me ask you some other stuff because sure. you're YouTube and y'all need to go, you, all you got to do is search Carver Brown, Big Book Study or Back to Basics. It's fascinating. I've literally been in and around recovery my entire adult life. And those videos were some of the most fascinating, easy to understand, helpful videos I've ever listened to. Like you're truly a benefit to all those in recovery. People, y'all need to go listen to it. He's absolutely fantastic. Well, you're kind. There's a whole backstory. Well, it's kind and true. Well, so. thank you. I, I, th that is my, that is I, doing that work, and I've been all over the country doing the, those workshops. I, I lost track way long ago at around seven thousand. I had taken through, so it's got to be pushing somewhere around eight, nine thousand people. I've taken through those those workshops, and th that is the. If I could figure out a way to just do that and make that work, I would take that thing around the world and never look back. It's my, I love, I love that. It's, it is my greatest joy in my life next to my family. Look, they're, they're great. Treatment centers ought to play them. Like you ought to have to watch that day one. No shit. Wow. It's fantastic. All right. Got a few rather miscellaneous questions yeah. that I want to throw at you. Sure. So if, uh, when, I'll, I'll not try to, if, I'll try to keep it brief. When, when everybody that's listening to this goes and hunts down uh, Carver's videos, you will hear Carver talk about the 300 plus or minus other 12-step programs. Yeah. And I thought, 300? Yeah. Holy shit. Right. So uh, you mentioned one, an under earners anonymous <laughs> right i met the guy who developed it. i've got this on my list here what is the oddest 12-step program that is amongst the 300 probably alien and abduction anonymous are you kidding me no i'm serious <laughs> no no i think that's the one that's that's probably the oddest i would think but you know aa and their benevolence will give the thing away they'll give those steps away to anybody that wants to Start up a twelve-step yeah. fellowship. You know, my old friend Billy used to say, "You can put anything in the twelve. You know, just take out, fall out, and put it." <laughs> That's in. exactly. I right. mean, I wonder who out there is having such a problem with alien abductions yeah. that they need to exercise their powerlessness there over. But think of the power of the anonymity. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you yeah. see, they need. To, it needs to be anonymous. Can't publicize that. All right. <laughs> So one of the things that I wanted to 
you asked me how did I get started on this, I think, before we started recording. And, you know, it was, it was a number of reasons. But one of the biggest ones was I thought, Drew, you have screwed your life up in spectacular fashion. And, I, I mean, you know, don't we all sit around and think, if only somebody had told me this, if only somebody had told me that, then maybe I wouldn't have. So I thought, you know, if I can conceive of, a, of an avenue for people to be real honest about their real problems mm-hmm. and not put on, you know, this facade that we often do at meetings yeah. uh, to where, oh, everything's great. And you're like, I know everything's not great in your life. Right. But I also wanted to have, uh, well, I thought if people would be real honest about their problems and where they are in their recovery, no matter how long they've been sober, mm-hmm. that it would be an attractive, that'd be attractive to people. Sure. You know, there's something... You know, honesty, gut level honesty resonates at a frequency that people can just appreciate. Right. And I thought that if people heard more of that, then they'd be like, you know what? I, I appreciate that Drew has this problem, or, you know, the other guests have these problems, or, you know, feel that, you know, this certain thing is a problem in their life and, and gives me some hope that, you know, I don't want to feel so alone. Right. Break the people, the, the antithesis of, of recovery is isolation. Right. And if this can be a vehicle to bring people out of isolation and be willing to have their own conversations about their Look, struggles. I'm perfectly well aware of uh, what they call it, confirmation bias, you know, like where we search out the things that support what we already believe. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely endorse this idea. You know, I've read that book. I've, I've talked about it on here before, Chasing the Screen. Oh, I love that. Isn't it great? Oh, my how gosh. he talks about... You know, the, the lack of interconnectivity between us and how right. by promoting that, you know, his whole rap Which was his whole next book. I hadn't read the next one. Well, that's what it's about. It's a further dive into connectivity. Look, I hopped right on that. I, I know. that is absolutely yes. inspired. Well, I'll check out his next book. Yeah. I promise I'll I've, I've got it. I hadn't read it. I've got it in the queue. But that first one, I don't see how he'll ever... It reads like a, like a mystery novel. It's fantastic. It is terrific. Look, and you know, all those interviews that he references in the books mm-hmm. are available on his website. Okay. And I did a little investigating into him. Good Apparently, he got, you know, he was this horrible alcoholic and drug addict. And he got hemmed up for having plagiarized or made up a story or made up a source. You know, one of those things that, you know, one of the cardinal sins for a reporter. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so, tra- you know, he offers up all this transparency. Okay. Like, don't take my word for it. Go listen to the interview I did with this person. Uh-huh. Okay, one of the other key reasons why I wanted to do the podcast was to give people an, uh, a place to go where they could get uh, information to further involve themselves in recovery in any capacity. Right. If a man or woman came to you and said, Carver, I just don't know how to get involved, give us three things right now that the average Joe or Jane can do tonight or tomorrow to get more involved. Well, the first thing is, I mean, the most powerful part of recovery is sharing. So, so the first thing I would say is you, you've got to share. You've got to, whatever you're keeping bundled up needs to come out. And so in order to do that, you got to have, a, you have to have safety, right? And so, you know, that's where attending meetings and doing, you, but you just, I, I, you had to break out of that that need to keep everything bundled up and you've got to share. And and sharing, what that could be individually, that could be there in a therapeutic environment, or that could be with a sponsor, or that could just be with a closed-mouthed understanding friend. Like what your friend did with you. Exactly. How, how are you sleeping? The power of a simple question. Right. Brought me out of and got me thinking about, whoa, you know, well, let me tell you. And it and opened me up to share. It was such a beautiful diagnostic. It wasn't, tell me about your drinking. I yeah. mean, that might have, I don't know, you know. But, but so that, that's, we've got we to gotta break out of isolation. That's the biggest thing. And I don't care whether the problems involve substance use disorder or sex, relational problems, you know, food. I've, see, I've had to deal with recovery on all those things. So, you know, I mean, my problems are big. And so consequently, my recovery has to be big. I think this may be a bit advanced, maybe for somebody that's new, but I would say don't compartmentalize your problem. You know, if you compartmentalize your problem, you're gonna compartmentalize the solution. 
So I saw, I see a lot of people that come in and they're willing to surrender their drinking, but I ain't gonna surrender, you know, this over here. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm in charge of this operation, and I'm in charge. You know, anything that we're anything that I'm in charge of, I'm gonna suffer. <laughs> you know. Right. And so, the, what I've learned is what I would instruct is recovery is a series of surrenders. The the more that you the more you're you're gonna you're gonna surrender something, it's gonna go along and then you're gonna suffer in another way. And that's gonna be your opportunity for your next surrender. And on and on. And so, you know, that that so my, my, my suggestion would be don't compartmentalize your recovery. Look at your situation clearly and completely. Even though it may begin as one thing, it's probably not. You know, when you come into recovery, you get sober for a little while, and then you start dating. Mm-mm. You know, and then you learn how to, how to suffer again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, and then you learn then you learn about your codependence, and you learn you know. So so my problem is is global. So my solution has got to be global. Well, you know, Keenan reflected on how all addiction is generally centered around things that affect dopamine. Right. Dopamine responses. So if you really kind of sat back in a, in a clinical fashion mm-hmm. and assessed all of the things in your life that promote, what, is it the production of dopamine or is it the way they fit in? Anything that's going to promote a release of dopamine, I guess, could be a potential problem area for you. Yeah, electronics, gaming, uh, the stock market, you know, what gives you those hits, but whatever it is that is being overly stimulating, you know, to you, I, I would guess, you know, I don't know, somebody like Keenan is way better versed you know, at the brain chemistry point of view. Well, I think that's all fascinating. Well, I do too, and I love hearing those lectures. And, you know, to me, because I can apply the the technical that they're describing to episodes within my life and ways that I can identify, boy, I went through that too. Um, Well, that's really a gift to be able to do that, you know, to take something from the cold, sterile, clinical world that's the benefit is well, being able to turn that around and then use it to our own well, how can yeah. we employ that in our own life this is where kind of the back to basics thing came if I I, I, I think if I've got one gift it's this this gift of being able to take things that are complex and distill them down to something simple that that's what I, I did with the video what you just said any more mm-hmm. than I'm doing right now that's exactly right yeah I, can, I I have and I have a way I can present it in a way that's not uh, that's 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 reasonably palatable it's approachable and approachable yeah. yeah I put it in 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 common terms that people can really chew on and it's not offensive and I try to have fun with it you know I try to keep it fun and light and tell stories and then, and it can be touching at one minute and humorous the next. And it, because the other thing I would say is, and this is something my mother, so the third thing I'll say is, you've got to learn how to have fun in recovery. Yes. If you don't learn how to make this fun, this thing ain't going to work for you. If this is a drudge, if it is a, if you're pushing a boulder uphill through the whole thing, then it isn't going to work. You're going to absolutely have to have fun. And that, for me, when I was first introduced to that, was a little terrifying, because I had lost the meaning of having sober fun. I really didn't know what that meant. Or yeah, it, it's something we have to practice. It is, and and be willing to try different things. Be willing to try different things. I had to get out and I had to try this. I found yoga that I really loved and got engaged with, and other things. Some things I tried and it wasn't for me, but I had to get out there and explore and do, and and then I had to pay attention to the quality of my relationships because that was the next area for me that I was going to suffer you know in I came to realize after my wife had left that all the relationships I was in were just like the ones I had been in when I was drinking only I wasn't drinking yeah and so stuck in that loop I was stuck in that loop so I had to surrender my inability to be in 
to know anything about or how to be in deep, loving, committed relationships. I, I was a teenager. I didn't know anything about it. I had to, I had to learn that. I had to, I had to, I had to practice that and take time out in my life. I took a year off. I wasn't going to date anybody, and I was gonna, I was gonna examine my inability to be in a in a committed, loving relationship. Well, I bet your wife now appreciates the work you did on yourself. I'm still working on me, though. She'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and this is not a destination. It's a, yeah. it's a thing she'll say. Hey, he ain't got it right yet. He's he's working. He's on working. It. On yeah, it. he's adorable. He's working on it, but no, no, he he's not there yet. Well, Carver, man, thank you. It's been fantastic. I can't wait to have you back because yeah, I really thanks. want to talk to you more about the, the back to basics. So. We could, yeah, we could go on and on about it. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. Thank you, buddy.